the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Justin. Hello, everyone. So, Lindsay, uh, this is the third year in a row that I get to celebrate with you with a anniversary show. Happy anniversary, Justin. How many episodes is this? What number are we on now? This would be episode 75. If you would have told me when we started, at when we were recording Ed Wood, that three years <laughs> later we'd be recording Terminator for our 75th episode, I, I don't yeah. know. I still think back to the eight or so episodes that no one will ever hear, our, our practice episodes that happened before we ever started letting you guys hear these. Justin, do you remember being at my kitchen table when I lived in that house and you brought your laptop over and we just were like spitballing Monster Squad? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So happy anniversary, Justin. 75 episodes in Terminator. This is still the job that I love the most and I love being your podcast partner. Yeah, same here, same here. Um, it's all love. Usually we don't get too personal on here. You know, we just cut straight to the movies, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, an incredible amount of work goes into each and every one of these episodes. And, um, yeah, I, I, whenever you describe it as the job that you love that you don't get paid for, I agree a hundred percent. We appreciate everybody who's out there following us. Please tell your friends, family, tell them to follow us. I mean, you know, you're listening. Yeah. We, we're, we're out here giving some high-class entertainment, positive, giving you some knowledge, giving you some stories, so when you're at the next party, when you can party in person, you can go, hey, you know this fun fact about Terminator you never knew? (laughs) Well, I do. (laughs) When we have, uh, we set out to do something special, so look out for it on our social media if you follow us already, because we're going to do our biggest podcast giveaway that we've done it's our, it's going to be our th- every anniversary show we do we do a pretty nice giveaway but we've got something really really cooked up that ties in all the movies that we've done in 2001 so far and i think uh i think everybody's going to really want to pay attention to our social media because um this is a prize uh, there's there's so many prizes in this giveaway you won't even know what to do with some of this stuff you'll pro- some of it you're just like i'm just gonna put it right in my garage, you know, to, to store away for the next yard sale and some of it, you know, you, there's some treasures in there. So, so, uh, look out for that, the giveaway contest we're doing. Terminator, one of my absolute favorite, um, science fiction films. It's one that, uh, we've wanted to get into for a while here. We did do a James Cameron movie before with the abyss, but, uh, you know, we really wanted to tackle like a, a great gritty sci-fi movie from the 80s and you really can't uh, go wrong with The Terminator. It certainly stands apart from the very well-known sequel as well as every every other uh, Terminator movie that came after it. This first original 1984 James Cameron film, man, it is a lot of fun. And also borders on kind of being a horror movie, which I had completely forgotten about. I had forgotten how scary this movie is, and this one probably sparks one of the earliest memories in my head of that movie that 
you're not supposed to see like when this came to HBO I was at my uncle's house and I was like oh the Terminator that's like supposed to be the scary radar movie that my mom probably won't want want me to watch and he said well as long as you don't say anything we can you know put it on and you know you can watch it and so I remember sitting down and like within you know just gripped with fear but at the same time like it was exhilarating and uh one of those movies that kind of forget how hardcore of a movie that is and this like unstoppable killer Uh, just the the setup alone is you know minus it being like sci-fi and this time travel and all this other story just the when you strip it down to like the bare essentials it is this very like killing machine hunting down its uh, target and it's very visceral yeah visceral is a good word very gritty this is a movie i really dig as an adult but i don't know i i don't really remember how it went over with me as a kid i think i was too Stuck in the, um, actually, what's my pick of the week this time around is the Arnold Schwarzenegger's Conan the Barbarian. I think that was more what I was used to with Arnold. And so seeing him in this was a little jarring and totally scary. Like the scene where he's digging into his eye scarred me from a very early age. But it's amazing and really cool to look at now like years and years later when those effects all of the effects in this movie still pretty much for the most part hold up we've talked about arnold schwarzenegger on the podcast multiple times and this movie cemented arnold schwarzenegger as a marquee name forever and ever after this i mean it had already started happening but with terminator there there wasn't any looking back for the guy And that's one of the things we'll talk about, the early makings of Terminator, how uh, James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger started their working relationship with this movie, going on to make two more very successful films. And we'll get into the stages of Terminator going from script to screen. And talking about the story itself, how this movie is special when it comes to action films, especially in 1984. And we love hitting on the cast. We'll tell some casting stories and get into maybe some, you know, things you didn't know about. And this movie being 37 years old, the effects still hold up quite great. And we'll get into that. We'll talk about the effects work that went into making the Terminator, as well as the multiple, multiple uh, movies that came after this became quite a franchise with a total of six movies now within this franchise. So crazy. Oh, and we can't escape talking about this movie and not talk about the score. What a amazing, like, gripping score to this film. There's a lot to uncover about Terminator. Yeah, I've been uh, driving around with the, the Terminator theme on my playlist, and that's just sort of like very strange, uh, you know, in these times to be like pulling into like a shopping center and everybody's wearing masks and you've got the Terminator theme song like blaring. You know, it's the pandemic and you can't see me right now, but man, I'm laughing. It's always going back to thinking about you with with the top-down jamming a movie soundtrack, and now it's the Terminator soundtrack. Um, but yeah, lots to talk about with Terminator. Um, then we'll get into our picks of the week. We kept this pretty heavy on the Arnold front. I did uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, movie that he did right after uh, Terminator, and that's 1985's Commando. Yeah, Commando was one that I grew up with as well. It was always the really, for some reason, Terminator was lower, I think on the totem pole of Arnold films, but Commando was on there as was probably the most 
well known to me as a youngster. I am doing Conan the Barbarian. After you tell me you're going to pick Conan, I wanted to revisit the first two Conan movies. I had recently watched, not too long ago, Red Sonia. And about halfway through that movie, I was thinking, you know what? I don't think I've ever seen this movie. Oh, um, really? Yeah. <laughs> and that one, uh, I, though I'm not I'm not necessarily a fan of the, the sort of sword and sorcery genre. Mm-hmm. So Red Sonia was a, was a tougher one for me to get through. I'm hoping that's not the same case with the Conan movies. Mm, if you can't do swords and sorcery, I don't know if Conan's going to be the movie for you either. I blame my brother for this. He didn't really make me watch these movies. I just thought he was really cool and he watched them. So all of these, all of these type of sort, as you say, sword and sorcery movies. Beastmaster is going to work its way in sometime. Beastmaster. That's one I got to revisit too. The Beastmaster. I just got married that for Christmas. The, they released this like remastered version of Beastmaster that's like this crazy like triple disc thing. So I've, Oh my God. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I still have nightmares about, we call them goobly goblies. I don't really remember what it was called, but it's the thing that puts its wings around you and like disintegrates your body. That's another podcast. Yeah. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we get into that first clip from Terminator, Lindsay, can you give me your interpretation of what this movie is? Um, you don't have to get into the crazy timelines or time loops or explaining how the plot actually works, but just uh, what's this movie about? God, that's all that I wrote about actually was the whole lineage of the Terminator and everything. No, I didn't at all. A human-looking cyborg named the Terminator is sent back in time from 2029 to 1984 to murder a woman named Sarah Connor. He hails from a time when machines have taken over the Earth, ruled by an artificial intelligence system which has driven humans into a desolate, dystopian future. Sarah Connor is unknowingly the future mother of the leader of the resistance against the almost certain future. If her son is never born humans will be obsolete, and a soldier from the future is also sent back in time to warn, protect, and prepare Sarah for her destiny to train and ensure the safety of her future son in order to save humanity from the machines. So heavy. This plot sounds like crazy and involved, but the Terminator is really straightforward. There is all of this backstory, but that's one of the things we'll get into in talking about the story. How you get all of this information is just a expertly woven in yep we'll we'll go to a clip from terminator we'll be back we'll talk about it the 600 series had rubber skin we spotted them easy but these are new they look human sweat bad breath everything very hard to spot i had to wait till he moved on you before i could zero him look i am not stupid you know they cannot make things like that yet not yet not for about 40 years. Are you saying it's from the future? One possible future. From your point of view, I don't know tech stuff. Then you're from the future too, is that right? Right. That Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop. Ever. Until you are dead. So it always seems to be the hardest part of starting a good movie is, is coming up with a good idea. It's that rare occasion, that idea coming to you in a premonition or a dream. 
I hope that there's 100% truth to this, that James Cameron thought up the idea of the Terminator from a dream. And who knows, maybe there was some subliminal, you know, thing he had seen or experienced and it worked his way into his unconscious. But how this came to him um, was what he would call a fever dream. Uh, while he was um, in Rome and working on Piranha 2 at the time. And he has this crazy dream that he woke up from and just immediately started writing down everything that happened and making drawings and and painting what he had seen in his dream. And that was like a a cyborg covered in in human flesh that was emerging from flames. It's very vivid visual and him knowing that obviously this was something to do with the future, but it was set in present day. And after being so affected by this, he gave Galen Hurd, a, a friend of his, a, a call, and they had worked together on um, previous productions and had also studied under Roger Corman together, had a working relationship, and she was kind of a budding producer at the time, so he wanted to run this idea by her. And she says, okay, that's that's a great idea, and starts to develop it a little bit further. He knew that he wanted this story to have a female hero involved in As we've seen in many James Cameron films, there's always a very strong central female figure. It's with Sarah Connor and Terminator is kind of where that started. So from everything that I can understand about James Cameron, that guy is nothing if not very confident and determined once he has a vision in mind. And so he is armed with this treatment for this script. It isn't completely lined out. But he's working on it with Gail Ann Hurd and running ideas by her, showing her these paintings and drawings. And they decide to pitch this story idea to anyone that'll listen and are turned down multiple times. But they did have one connection uh, at Orion Pictures. And it was uh, two people who had previously worked with Roger Corman were working at Orion Pictures. And once Gail Ann Hurd and James Cameron slipped the script to them, they loved it and thought, okay, Maybe we can do distribution on this, but you guys got to find somebody that's going to, you know, back it money wise. So with that in mind, Cameron starts further developing the story. He knows that this is going to be kind of a bigger production deal. From what I understand about James Cameron, he is a guy that was always kind of good at everything, whether it was set building I mean, he's an artist, not to pump the guy up or anything, but it does sound like he knew a lot of different aspects of all of filmmaking. So he kind of knew that this was going to entail a lot, but was very focused on making this story be the biggest and best and the most amazing thing that anyone had ever seen. So once those two have an unspoken deal with Orion, Cameron starts to work on the script more, and he gets an old buddy of his, William Wisher, involved too. Again, this is another guy that, along with James Cameron and Galen Hurd, They've been longtime collaborators. They'd known each other for for many years. So William Wisher is, I think, credited with throwing in uh, additional dialogue to the story. But along with him and influences of Gail Ann Hurd, Cameron really starts to flesh out this script. He knows that this idea of the Terminator is somebody that is supposed to blend in, isn't someone that's supposed to stick out. And thinking about that now and knowing what the Terminator looks like, You might be scratching your head going, really? That's what he was thinking about? No matter what, the Terminator was going to be somebody that was an unstoppable force. So once the script was in good shape, James Cameron knew he wanted to be partners with Gail and Hurd on this production. So he sold the rights to her for $1, the only stipulation being that he would be the director and that she would make sure that in the process of this, a lot of times happens, producers like the script, but they 
they want to get someone who's a more seasoned director. And at that point in Cameron's career, the only movie he had directed was one that he had been fired off of, Piranha 2. He had a clear vision. He wanted to make sure that he had someone that was going to back him um, through the whole process. And Gail Ann Hurd did just that. She made sure that Cameron's vision was protected and that he you know, was able to focus on directing and just about everyone that jumped aboard of this production in interviews, you hear them. I mean, they say Cameron was the real deal and, you know, the script was great, but then, you know, he was able to like sketch ideas out and, and paint, uh, you know, pictures of how he wanted the, the robot to look and the Terminator, how it was supposed to come off and uh, really got a lot of great people on board um, for considerable small budget for a pretty big special effects laden sci-fi action movie. But uh, once they got Hemdale Productions was the one who was going to give them the money the I believe it was uh, starting out with four million. They eventually were able to get up to six million to finish the movie. Six million dollars for this movie for all of the effects and technology that went into it. Holy crap! Obviously, Cameron knew how to get the most for what you're paying for. So that's why a lot of the people that got involved were people that he had collaborated with, and then also effects people who had been around for a while and knew how to make amazing visuals happen for on the cheap and along with getting effects people involved the studio wanted a big name to help sell this it wasn't like action movies and apocalyptic movies were you know something that was totally new at that point it was kind of to be expected that this would be a movie that would make back money but you know they weren't necessarily putting a lot of stock behind it so getting a bigger name for the time could really help this production And Arnold Schwarzenegger was thrown in as, you know, this is the guy that should be the hero of the story, which, you know, is not the title character. That's the Terminator. The hero is the character Kyle Reese, who is later played by Michael Bean. But Cameron was not really on board with the idea of having Arnold come in and be the be the savior, be the good guy in this. And that predominantly had been what Arnold had been doing was being the hero of the story versus being the villain. Uh, Arnold himself read the script, and he gravitated more toward the character of the Terminator. As the story goes, James Cameron really wasn't liking the idea of Schwarzenegger being the hero of the story either, and in fact said to co-writer William Wisher, man, I gotta go meet with Arnold Schwarzenegger and I guess I gotta pick a fight with him because that's the only way he's not gonna be in this movie is if we don't get along. So they go and they have a lunch and I guess they're both kind of a little standoffish because, you know, Cameron doesn't want him to be the hero and unbeknownst to him, Arnold doesn't want to be the hero either. So after the meeting, James Cameron, he still is in 100% agreement with himself that Schwarzenegger should not be the hero of this movie but he gets to thinking about Schwarzenegger as a Terminator and even sketches out, you know, a really rough sketch of Schwarzenegger's face, like half of it being the robotic uh, portion of the Terminator that we see later in the movie. And so he contacts Schwarzenegger's agent and says, you know, we don't want Schwarzenegger for the hero, but we would like him to play the Terminator possibly. And James Cameron was thrilled with the news to find out that that's actually what that Schwarzenegger wanted was to play the Terminator. And so they locked it in. It was like a very quick deal. And they got their their title character with um, Schwarzenegger playing, you know, really one of his most iconic roles and catapulted this uh, long-standing 
relationship with James Cameron, but they were still stuck without a lead hero. But having Schwarzenegger on board um, was definitely going to help out the studio's expectations of, you know, this movie is starting to come together and become a real thing. So with Schwarzenegger on board, everything got greenlit for the Terminator to go into production and the rest of the cast kind of fell into place. We're going to go more into Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean um, in the second discussion when we talk more about the cast. But so a production schedule was set for the summer of 83 in Toronto. And then the production got thrown a curveball. Dino De Laurentiis, who we've talked about numerous times on the podcast, got wind about the Terminator uh, happening. And I, I don't know if he got a script leaked to him or just had just heard about it and heard that, you know, his main guy from the Conan movies, Arnold, was going to be starring in this and said, hey, hold up a second, James Cameron. I'm going to write something into Arnold's contract that makes him do Conan the Destroyer first, and then he can come do Terminator. So that, you know, set kind of everything back. The whole production schedule had been set for Terminator and everybody was kind of like, okay, now what do we do? I guess everyone's just on hold. And so everything had been cast, everything had been set. And so basically all of the cast is, you know, just told, hold up, guys. We're going to put you on retainer. You're going to have a job in like nine months. Just hold on. And I can imagine how when you have a director that, you know, it's not like he was well seasoned or had, was a big name. But people were a little skeptical, like, is this really going to happen? I hope this is going to happen. Everyone hung on and just waited it out. But it was kind of a blessing in disguise because they got nine months to prep and storyboard and talk to the effects team, get everything lined out and do extra research for characters. Everything just got so prepped in that nine months before they actually started filming in 84. And that's got to be amazing. I mean, the, the, it seems like any film production you've ever heard of, they always just said, if we had a little more time, we would have been able to do this or we would have been able to make this happen or pick up these shots. And so getting nine months to kind of go in, especially as an actor, getting to prepare and really get into it. And then, yeah, this movie so effects heavy. Um, it was a very big deal for them to be able to test things out and really bring Cameron's you know, idea of what this Terminator is going to look like. The one thing that they wanted, even more than a known lead actor, was having a very, very amazing effects person. And everyone told him the person that you need to, to make to create the Terminator was Dick Smith, who was well known for doing the effects work on The Exorcist and David Cronenberg's Scanners, and was very familiar with this type of genre, horror, sci-fi genre, doing something that's not of this world. Dick Smith uh, said, I can't work on this, but you need to talk to Stan Winston, who has gone on to do so many well-known movies. And once uh, Cameron sat down with Stan Winston and started showing him all these sketches that Cameron had, uh, Stan Winston got really, really excited and thought, man, I can, I can do something really cool with this and began work on the Terminator itself. You know, there was uh, several effects teams that worked on this movie, but uh, Stan Winston handled the actual, like, uh, makeup effects that, that Schwarzenegger had. When you see underneath the skin and you see these machine, like the him repairing himself in the hotel room sequence and the end of the movie when you see him half skin torn off Terminator face where he's driving the truck and basically making us believe that this guy is, there. there's a machine underneath Arnold's skin. You know, I couldn't help but think watching this, the makeup that happens in here and we're supposed to, you know, see the cyborg that's underneath this this human skin no matter 
if the if you feel like it looks a little off or it looks like really makeup or it looks like kind of fake the thing is is that it should kind of look weird because it is you know a human skin suit over a cyborg and there's this really cool difference I think that happens where it looks like a skin suit and then you've got half of Arnold's real face with the cyborg it's just a really good mixture of not being able to tell where is the real Arnold and where's the fake head and making all of these animatronics work And with that, too, along with the makeup, Stan Winston's also responsible for the fully formed Terminator cyborg that's underneath all that skin in the movie, too, which that thing is incredible. And for 84, I feel like those effects and how the Terminator looks is as futuristic that we would even do in 2021. And I think they did a lot of different variations of what the Terminator, the cyborg, would look like and in the end went back to James Cameron's original sketches of of what he thought the Terminator would look like. They do a lot of shots where they'll, you know, do the the robot Terminator toward the end from like the waist up or, you know, they just show like an arm so that they can get these nice looking close ups that look real. But then uh, you're not always giving away the whole thing in like a shot that maybe they weren't able to get to see this thing moving around, you know, for too long. You kind of want to hide the effects you know, it's probably like 35 or 40 minutes into the movie before you actually see Arnold Schwarzenegger like take a few gunshots. But even that, you know, that's you, you see him kind of smoking, but there's not you, you still uh, you've still always like believe this guy's a robot. You know, he's a Terminator just because of the way he's been functioning. And, uh, you know, he really sells it as a machine before we get into uh, the effects where he's like, you know, now we're starting to get see underneath. And I love that transition because it's very subtle bit by bit as he gets like more torn up throughout the movie. At the end, it's just like a full on use. We see nothing but a machine like Arnold's skin has been completely burned off. What was an extra blessing about that, the believability of Arnold being the Terminator, is that even though Cameron's idea that the Terminator is someone that's supposed to blend in, for some reason, Arnold does blend in. And I don't know how that works in this film, but somehow he does kind of blend in. But along with blending into just normal people out on the street, he completely sells the fact that he's a robot just because of his stature, just because he is a six foot something giant man that you kind of already accept that he's a cyborg (laughs) underneath there. And then these amazing effects that go with it, it just is a complete package that I don't know, like Arnold kind of was the the perfect person for this role. And another, I think thing that sells it of him sort of blending in or at Mm -hmm. least, at least like to me, looking aesthetically cool in all these movies they when they time travel and they land that they're completely naked so the first thing that a terminator has to do is find someone with matching clothes they had to come up with the idea of like you know we don't want him to like you know knock some guy out that has like khakis that are going to fit him and you know a polo shirt i mean it would just the whole vibe of the terminator could have been totally different if he would have just like grabbed somebody with a different outfit. And same thing with Michael Myers, you know, if he would have grabbed something other than a zip up gas station attendant's outfit and would have stole some guy's Hawaiian shirt, it just wouldn't be as like menacing. The fact that they've got Schwarzenegger kind of looking like a punk rocker, um, 
you know, walking around with a shotgun is, it's just, a, it's a, it's a really good aesthetic. You know, you mentioned that in the intro, but yeah, that scene where he's like repairing himself in the Ooh, hotel yeah. room. Cause I think that's, that's a scene too, where the audience, I mean, it's there, that scene takes its time, you know, and it's the there. Arm, the arm specifically. Yeah, I mean, like, like the, opening the, it up I and think, then like, cut, yeah. And cutting his eye out and then to reveal red robot LED type eyeball and you know puts the sunglasses on over that all these little things that I think make the movie what it is and that specifically that scene like really giving us a moment to kind of calm down for a minute as an audience because there's been you know it's just been this like very long chase sequence where he's trying to hunt down Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese that moment in the hotel room I think is like where the Stan Winston special effects like really pay off and especially the arm, like kind of seeing the uh, different little wires, you know, that are running like metal Ooh, metal yeah. bars in his wrist. Yeah. And, and then especially two places, I think, that are just very tender for like us as humans to see like a wrist cut or like an eyeball cut. And, <laughs> yeah. And Cameron went for both of those. Yeah. As specifically with the arm that when he's messing with the wires in his arm that the fingers are moving too. Oh, I mean, just attention to detail there. Stan Winston sure knew how to uh, affect an audience just with like little things. And like you said, Justin, he wasn't the only effects guy that was working on this. There were a few teams. Uh, one, the the special visual effects was the group Fantasy 2, which was spearheaded by Gene Warren Jr. And these were the guys in charge of the in-camera effects. Creating that whole world that we only get to see in Kyle Reese's flashbacks of what the future was, you know, the war of the machines. Yeah, that to me, doing all of these miniatures and everything that goes along with that, just is kind of, it, it blew me away, really learning about all of this. Because I don't know, you can, you can watch this movie and it is so visually spectacular and believable that you don't really question how it's made. I mean, unless you're probably a, a special effects person, of course, but knowing that all of that stuff is, they're all miniatures. They're all shot with rear projection, even down to the stop motion stuff. Of course, that's not in the future scenes, but all of these components were just done with such immaculate attention to detail. The miniature stuff kind of blows me away. The truck specifically that gets blown up, Cameron wanted to really like blow up a gas truck. And they're like, well, we can't, we can't do that. Not only because it's expensive, but because of the location. So they built a backdrop, a miniature set of that that matched the stuff that the live action stuff that they had already shot with Kyle Reese and Linda Hamilton and the truck that Schwarzenegger's driving that Kyle Reese puts the pipe bomb in the special effects crew built a truck that was two feet tall and eight feet long that they blew up with explosives it makes for a great set and even after watching the behind the scenes stuff when I rewatched the the movie, the way that they they cut in the live action stuff going into the miniature work, um, it's pretty seamless. And it still looks like, to me, it looks like a, a real truck blowing up. Completely agree with you. The truck is the one that blows me away. The futuristic stuff, I completely believe too. Knowing the foreground, middle ground, and background, everything that's happening in those scenes, you can see it a little bit, only if you know how it was made. But the truck, I don't even know. I, <laughs> I don't know how they made that look so like real it, it's amazing and again all these all these people that worked on the the special effects uh, in, in interview after interview you always hear them say yeah James Cameron like knew what he wanted he was an easy person to work for because the guy can just sketch out 
you know, to a T, like what he wants these to look like and how, you know, he can storyboard how he wants these images to look and even help out with paintings, you know, for sets. And Mm -hmm. James Cameron got to start doing that. He worked as a model and set painter on Escape from New York and being influenced by John Carpenter, you can see that dark imagery from Escape from New York, like working that same sort of field, that same sort of style in The Terminator, the first one anyway. Yeah, darkness is certainly a theme all throughout this movie. It is dark thematically, dark visually, just a dark fantasy in general. And something that had been planned on the whole time, right down to planning little Easter eggs, like there's a nightclub scene that's called Tech Noir, meaning like the the darkness of technology, which is all that the Terminator's about. You know, if we are stripped down of the constraints of society and, you know, you have one person whose one mission is to kill this person who can, just their existence can alter the rest of humanity. There's so many themes woven into this, whether it is darkness or whether it is something that's kind of even hopeful in a way of no matter how small or insignificant or normal you might seem you don't know how your existence can affect the rest of, of the world or how you can make a difference in the world. This hopeful theme woven into such a dark story is, I think, something that fits in very well into all of Cameron's films. And, and I love seeing it here because it's not something that's, um, I don't know, too romanticized, but it's something that's uh, woven into a gritty and somehow believable story like i i buy that this is happening i don't know why but i kind of do well yeah and it's it's some pretty heady themes for the early 80s i mean this is prior to the internet prior to people really really actually being scared of like machines taking over their jobs Mm -hmm. you know and this idea that machines can program themselves to become so much smarter and so much more advanced than humans and that even Kyle Reese says this chilling line to Sarah Connor of he'll never sleep he'll never stop until you're dead he's been programmed to like do one thing and one thing only and that's like kill you just very freaky and there's a lot of exposition in this movie and there's a lot of backstory that comes out that you know you're listening to but it's always while they're on the run you know Kyle Reese is explaining where he came from and all about how the machines took over and what the future's like and how cold it is and how dark it is and how you know the humans are always hiding out and they're trying to identify these these terminators and I love it. Uh, it's a, it's one of the few movies where I don't mind. It's a flashback for him, but it's a flash forward for the audience. It works, you know, and they don't overuse it. And you get a sense of we're already in a, in the Terminator universe in the present day is already kind of dark and dreary. And then they sort of like mm-hmm. times that by 10 for the future <laughs> look of, of Kyle yeah. Reese, you know, as a fighter trying to to stop these machines. So yeah, there's a lot going on here. It's it's a simple story at its core. It's very, very imaginative. And I do like that Cameron created these two different worlds, you know, these two different uh, time periods. And one of which we can identify with because it's, you know, at least you could in the 80s, this present day. Um, But then again, getting this like very, like you mentioned, you know, believable realistic version of like what a sort of desolate future would be like but i think being original in its way like it's not the post-apocalyptic 
uh, look of like deserts and everything that yeah, you know, had yeah. already been done before. I mean, that was something that had been done several times, but I think Cameron borrowed a little bit from Slasher, borrowed a little bit from Post-Apocalyptic and made his own, you know, in a little sci-fi, little B-movie and made something that's like a, a smart, concise, original film. And the other thing that set it apart from other action thrillers is how you said the exposition is told during during moments of action and like you don't really have any moments to sit down. You're just going and going and going. But that goes along with the whole pacing of the entire film. It is on the run and not necessarily just running away from the Terminator. It all takes place in one night. It's just constant, constant, constant. And you know that if you don't stop, you're going to be killed if you're Sarah Connor. And it's just a movie that is unrelenting. And I think we even get that through the score and through the theme. The musical score to this feels very of the time, but being all synthesizers, it also feels futuristic. So it does this cool blend of darkness and you know contemporary music but also being something that feels futuristic and that is made by all robots <laughs> you know yeah i love that the score starts out very minimal and then just sort of starts building with like these metallic sounding percussives and then really like opens up with a i think at times like a heroic theme you know or like a, mm-hmm. a victory yeah. theme to it but yeah the, the score is is really fantastic i've been blasting it in my car and it, you've been driving uh, like 120 miles yeah. down down the street you know, just, just like, blasting it and it really is a instantly recognizable like yeah that is the terminator same way we hear Indiana jones theme or back to the future or superman and as moody and intense as it is that percussive driving beat was intentional from composer Brad Fidel, he had the idea in his head that it was this mechanical heartbeat, like the heartbeat of the Terminator. Another thing I loved learning is that all of it was, that's all recorded live, is him controlling every noise that you hear, just him. You kind of have to be some version of crazy to make that happen, at least mastermind type crazy. But I just love uh, all of the instrumentation that Brad Fidel did, did in all of this movie. And Cameron said that Brad Fidel recorded this whole thing in his garage. And he was like, I mean, you know, it was a cool looking garage. He had a lot of gear, but it's just kind of funny. It's like the guy with a lot of synthesizers in his garage, (laughs) you know, like banging out the Terminator score. He's totally that guy, you know. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. When we come back, we'll talk about the cast. We'll talk about the release in the uh, ever-growing franchise of the Terminator. Let's go to another clip. Sounds good. I'm a friend of Sierra Connor. I was told that she's here. Could I see her, please? No, can't see her. She's making a statement. Where is she? Look, it may take a while. I want to wait. There's a bench over there. I'll be back. So with The Terminator, I kind of think of this as three lead roles because Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, and Michael Bean all sort of get their own amount of shared screen time in the beginning when a story's cutting in between The Terminator hunting down Sarah Connor, Michael Bean trying to find Sarah Connor, and Sarah Connor living her life, you know, getting ready for her shift. 
as a waitress. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, we already talked about before, but again, really does sell this. This was a point in his career where he was getting a lot of flack for his accent. And Schwarzenegger asked Cameron, what about the accent? And James Cameron was just like, it's the future, you know, what does it matter if the guy's got an, the Terminator has like an accent? And Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, has something like 30 lines of dialogue, makes the most of it. And I do, uh, you know, he gets the one line in the movie that is the most memorable, and that's I'll Be Back. And that particular line in an interview with Schwarzenegger, he was saying he didn't feel comfortable with it. He thought that it wasn't the right way to say the line. And James Cameron said, well, how would you say it? And Schwarzenegger said, I would say it as I will be back. And Cameron was like, no, absolutely not. Like, it's it's got to be like, I'll be back. Um, like, the more robotic, like uh, like the Terminator wouldn't use contractions or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and the way and the way Schwarzenegger plays it, too, is perfect because, you know, he's at the police station. He's sort of scanning the room, you know, like, how hard would it be for me to overtake this police station? But that idea of, like, meaning it and then, like, driving through the police station later is the big payoff for that line. Yeah, yeah. And definitely a, a line that was worked into the other movies, but not only that, I think— was the start of Arnold Schwarzenegger movie saying, you know, we, we got to give this guy like some one-liners pretty much all through the 80s. Most of the time when you see a Schwarzenegger reel or something, it's like that's what you're getting hit with is the, <laughs> is the main whatever line from each movie. You know, it is kind of true, though. I don't think that the Terminator would have used contractions. I get what Arnold's saying. And about his accent, the idea of it being an Austrian accent, something other than a regional American like specific area of the country accent it was I think Cameron's idea of you know like you said it doesn't matter it's the future it being something that is foreign to an American audience that it kind of didn't matter but as for an actor like Michael Bean when he walked into his audition for Kyle Reese he had just come off another audition and had been using a southern accent and worked that into his audition and that actually played against him they they were like you know we really like you but the accent we got to have you can can we lose that and it was just something that he wasn't able to shake that particular day but was like oh yeah i'm not southern but it's funny that a southern accent is something that wouldn't have been workable in the future but yet the austrian accent is something that is completely doable for it I think Michael Bean's a, a really great choice for this because, you know, as a leading man, has like a handsome look to him. And he has such a short amount of time for them to have this romance of sorts, you know, because really like in the beginning of the movie, he's like kind of yelling at Sarah Connor and like just giving her like loads and loads of exposition about where he came from and what's going on. And he's, you know, as well informing her, informing the audience of like filling in the gaps of of what we didn't get out of the uh, narration title card in the beginning. And he does a perfect balance of having this um, handsome, you know, look about him that we can buy the fact that, okay, she's going to end up sleeping with Michael Bean later on in the movie. And also this idea that he's different from like the way the Terminator looks, you know, he's a soldier, but he's a slimmer, um, build, you know, he doesn't look like some like bodybuilder type. So I think it's it's great. It kind of plays opposite of Arnold Schwarzenegger's look, and it also makes Arnold Schwarzenegger even more imposing to the audience. Yeah, Michael Bean does a great job of mixing 
a toughness with vulnerability. If you had an action star, an actor that was just really pushing forward and kind of just not necessarily being an equal to, say, Linda Hamilton's character or being someone that was empathetic to her situation. The fact that they, you know, kind of fall for each other in less than you know, a day. This idea that he's also been, you know, in love with her for years after hearing stories about her from the future John Connor and there's such a deepness to his character. And I don't think that someone that was an action star or had a more macho side really could have pulled it off. The vulnerability and the uh, strong emotional side that Michael Bean, I mean, really that he's able to bring to like aliens and even his craziness in the abyss, what he brings to um, this role was a perfect choice. And I'm, I'm glad that he and Cameron kept on their professional relationship together. And Linda Hamilton, I couldn't find as much on her coming into this project, but she had done several movies. I think she was just coming off of Children of the Corn when she was cast for The Terminator. I think originally she was written as a, like a 19-year-old, but I think it was a better choice to go with Linda Hamilton instead of casting someone super young. Brings like more maturity to the role. And someone who starts out is is very, I didn't think about tomorrow, and now they're like thrust into the situation. They're very terrified and, and very confused, but by the end of the movie, they seem like a fighter and someone who's sort of has like a transformation over one one night uh, you know, really like a full character arc of, of a 24-hour period. Linda Hamilton, we, we see the jump that she made for Terminator 2, which was just like a, you know, not only a physical transformation, but really, really uh, selling like where her character's been, like how much turmoil she's been through, how much baggage she's had to carry between the events that took place between 1 and the beginning of Terminator 2. And you see just a tiny little bit of that at the end of Terminator, you know, where she's already carrying the weight of these events and and already, like, carrying the baggage of knowing the knowledge of the future and no one not being able to really even talk to anybody about it, like having to keep that all inside. Watching her transformation over just the course of one night is pretty cool. And it's also one of the reasons sometimes it's easy to forget that this movie does take place all in the course of 24 hours, is that Sarah Connor transforms from a vulnerable, everyday girl that is just, she's just looking to have fun. She's just, she's doing her job, living her best life. And then at the end of that 24 hours is helping on Michael Bean, the soldier that's been sent back to save her. And she's like, she's becoming the hero to have that within your character and to be able to sell it. Linda Hamilton starts out unassuming. And then by the end, like I'm looking for her in 2021. I want her to come up and save the day right now. One thing to notice about her performance in this film, the next time you watch it, she has a lot of running scenes, as does Michael Bean. There's a lot of running it's a very physically demanding role on everyone's part, specifically Linda Hamilton. And the next time you watch it, though, notice her limping a few times. Um, that is because that very talented, sweet, professional actor, Linda Hamilton, was running on like recovering broken ankle that she had injured right before they started filming. And so they were taping up and wrapping that ankle every single time that she was due to be filming. And I think saved the more physically demanding scenes to later in the day of a shoot, which meant that they had to completely adjust the shooting schedule for each day. 
I mean, it's just something that you can't foresee that comes up. But geez, Louise, shooting a whole movie on a friggin' recovering broken ankle. I mean, broken or sprained. Either way, it's terrible. Can't even imagine. The only bright spot, it would be easy to summon that look of pain in your face. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like Linda Hamilton certainly felt the physical demands of this film. And I mean, she got frustrated and Michael Bean said she was pissed off sometimes, but not like at him or like it was just like it was a very grueling shoot. Sarah Connor goes through a lot in the film and Linda Hamilton was the person that had to not only endure that, but make it look like everything that Sarah Connor was going through, but over and over and over and over again on top of being injured. I mean, what a pro, Linda Hamilton. And, you know, I know we're talking about Terminator 1 and that 2, but the commit her commitment level to Terminator 2, like, I remember seeing that in the theater in that just that first shot of her. You believe that she's been preparing for this Terminator to, co- to come back for 10 years. Yet again, another transformation. You know, she has this huge transformation in the first one and then by the second one yeah exactly and definitely a lot of great small roles in terminator one role of being lance hendrickson who originally there was an intention of having lance hendrickson play the terminator i think lance hendrickson totally would have pulled that off Um, and that's when the original idea was to have him blend in to kind of look more like to blend in the crowd, not stick out. But Lance Henriksen ended up not getting the role, obviously, but uh, Cameron did give him a role, a much lesser size role, and and his kind of like a goofy role, but he gets, I think, a a couple of feel-good moments in the movie. And, (laughs) uh, you know, Cameron did use him later on and and gave him a a, a legit awesome role in in the uh, Alien series. His initial vying for the role of the Terminator, and James Cameron was on board with this, is nothing short of such a classic, awesome Hollywood story of trying to sell a movie. So when James Cameron is planning to go sell this movie to Hemdale, Lance Hendrickson shows up first to the meeting in full Terminator gear, like the outfit. He's got foil on his teeth. He's got like makeup on his face, like blood and gashes on his face. It looks pretty scary, right? And it is there for a good 10 minutes or so. Kind of has the whole office a little freaked out, uncomfortable. And as the story goes, James Cameron came in and was like, oh, hey, Lance, you're already here. <laughs> like right before someone's about ready to call the cops on this guy. Man, what a what a way to sell the movie. And I think Cameron knew that that entrance, seeing this visualization of what the Terminator could look like, even though it's not you know, what he evolved into, but just that visual that really helped sell this idea to Hemdale. And we can't forget about Lance Henriksen's police counterpart played by Paul Winfield. Again, another wonderful actor that had been around for many a years before. It has a great role in this in this movie too. Not as meaty as the three leads, but that's kind of how this movie is set up. All of the minor roles are pretty equal, but everyone does a solid job of selling it. Yeah, he plays like the measured police officer and trying to figure out track down because as far as they know, uh, basically like a somewhat of a serial killer is like stalking anybody with the name Sarah Connor and tracking them down and killing them. Also at the police station, a lot of his scenes, as long as Lance Henriksen take place at the police station, as well as Earl Bowen, who plays the psychiatrist, basically looks at Kyle Reese is a, a way to exploit him. He's like, I could write a whole book on this guy. You know, Earl Bowen has such a small role, but he's got that memorable face. And I thought it was cool that they decided to bring his character back for Terminator 2 
you know, the person who is basically in charge of Sarah Connor in the beginning of Terminator 2. And he is uh, one of the only actors other than Schwarzenegger who appeared in the first three Terminators together. When I saw him pop up in Terminator 3, his just short scene, I, I laughed kind of real hard. They they used his character very well and, and brought that humor aspect that's a little twinkle in almost all of the Terminators. We've done several movies with sort of the snarky psychologist character <laughs> that's true he have oh you know who we can't forget about someone who we love whenever he comes up in a movie i know you love him so much dick miller pawn shop clerk yeah who, who takes a <laughs> takes a bullet early on i think he's the one of the first few victims of arnold schwarzenegger's terminator and you know that one's coming too you see the terminator loading that gun at a gun shop you can't be loading a gun there what are you doing you know that dick miller is about ready to eat it and actor Bill Paxton has had a long uh, relationship with James Cameron, appearing in several of his movies and with a really great role in Aliens. But uh, you can, you know, the, the Terminator is a good way to see where some of these early relationships start. But Bill Paxton does appear early on as one of the punk rockers who Arnold Schwarzenegger takes out when he's uh, first gets to planet Earth and is looking for clothes. I got to give a quick shout out since we're talking about that scene. Character actor that's been around forever. Uh, Brian Thompson, he's the other punk that gets his heart ripped out or something. Arnold's fist goes up into his torso. Brian Thompson, long runner as the bounty hunter on X-Files for like nine seasons. Dude's been a character actor for his entire life, I feel like. And I think he could have also played the Terminator too, just by his chiseled face. Yeah, he uh, he plays a very creepy killer in the movie Cobra with Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I love that actor. He's a very, very distinct look. If there's anyone that slightly could resemble or be related to Schwarzenegger, it would be Brian Thompson. Yeah. And a little fun thing that you might not realize, um, there's a policeman, a real short policeman scene um, that is played by William Wisher, who was one of the uh, co-writers. of Terminator and it's fun that he got a little bit role in this movie too now you might think because this franchise is so huge that the studio would be totally behind this and really want to pump as much marketing money as they could into into rolling out the Terminator but it wasn't the case Orion really didn't put too much stock into it they thought it was an easily marketable movie um but just, you know, they figured that they would make their money back, but didn't really think that it would be something like a blockbuster. Like, no way, that wasn't something that was even um, a thought. Didn't have much faith in it. But then at the behest of Schwarzenegger and Michael Bean's agents, they said, you guys have really have something special in your hands. You really need to do a critic screening. Orion agreed to that. They only did one press screening, but it was enough to create a little bit of a buzz and really started raking in the bucks the first weekend out. Yeah, it was number one at the box office its first week out. It was number one at the box office its second week out. And its third week, if you can believe it, it was knocked out of the number one spot by the... Uh, George Burns classic? George Burns classic, <laughs> which, believe it or not, those movies like were huge hits. Um, but Dude, oh, I watched oh, all of those. Oh God, <laughs> oh, God, you devil knocked Terminator out of the number one spot. But the <laughs> Terminator did go on to continue making money. It made $40 million plus during its theatrical run, which by today's standards and by today's Terminator movies doesn't sound like much, but for untapped market and movie, did pretty well for itself. And then once it hit video, which is where I was made aware of, of the Terminator by seeing it on HBO, where I think a lot of 
people, you know, growing up our age, kids our age, like caught it on television for years to come. One thing that was striking about the marketing of this movie was Orion thought, you know, this is strictly going to be for young male audience. But when the movie came out, they found that it wasn't just young males. It was kind of across the board and universal and women were interested in this film, but they had already blown all of the marketing budget. So there wasn't really a way to do another wave of campaigning for the film. But yeah, in home media, man, this movie certainly found um, another audience, thankfully, because I think Sarah Connor has, has become quite um, a hero for doesn't even matter your gender, just a across-the-board hero for so many. It's really hard to believe as of 2019, there are now six Terminator movies in the franchise. And with any movies where you get up, where you're getting it up to like part four and five and six, it's a rocky road, especially amongst fans, because there's some fans that are going to be happy about, you know, canon-type films. It's like it has to do with the first original one or the second original one. The Terminator series... It had its ups and downs. Some of them stuck with the original story and others did not. It feels like across the board, Terminator 2 is a beloved sequel. And many people even think that it's better than the first one. I'm not in that camp, but I do really love Terminator 2. Yeah, I think it's awesome that Terminator 2 and Aliens are are considered uh, two of the best sequels ever made, both by Cameron and the guy just knows how to tell a continuation of an already good original story. Not to help toot the guy's horn. I mean, he doesn't really need any help in that department, but he is he is a good storyteller. And Terminator 2, yeah, I, I'm I'm more of a fan of, of the first one, but Terminator 2 has everything that you want in a sequel. You know, it's a continuation of the story. It's bigger, gives you some of the things that you loved about the first one, but it's not a direct retread, and also offers something brand new, and that's like taking something that we know and completely spinning it and having, you know, the Schwarzenegger character be a protector instead of a Terminator. And it's just like a, a unique spin. It's certainly like there's times where the movie has a lighter tone. Rightly so, you know, it's lead character is a 13-year-old kid. The Terminator kind of becomes like a strange father figure type character to him. They have like several moments that are, you know, pretty emotional, as emotional as you can get for a sequel to Terminator. Really a cemented Terminator in its box office domination. Like part two was such a huge smash hit that there was no doubt that they were going to keep making Terminators. It was like printing money at that point. They're going to keep making that deadline for the apocalypse go further and further out the more money that they make with all of the sequels from this. And after Terminator 2 Judgment Day was Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. I don't mind this one. It is kind of a different style of the film. It still has Schwarzenegger in it, but it stars Nick Stahl as John Connor and Claire Danes. The story evolves to be like a, a new Terminator is sent back in time to kill the future resistance leaders that will be in the future. So John Connor's living off the grid. People don't really know he's still around. Like the the John Connor story is still happening. This movie takes, I don't want to say a, a lighter tone, but it feels more of a Hollywood cash cow to a way to, to get bucks. And it's, it's not a bad movie. It's not my least favorite of the series. Um, I like Nick Stahl and, and Claire Danes, you know, 
if you're going to continue the story, it was it was a fine third edition. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not a it's not a terrible movie. I can see why James Cameron dipped out after part two. You know, he didn't really want to have anything to do with the third one. And Gail Ann Hurd continued to produce the Terminator movies. She had a stock in Terminator and had become a huge producer at this point. And, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you keep this franchise going as a producer and working for a studio? That's kind of best case scenarios to, to franchise out. Now, Terminator 4 Salvation, this one is the only one that doesn't have Schwarzenegger in it. It's set in 2018, this post-apocalyptic setting, and it's more about the war between the between Skynet, which is the artificial intelligence uh, machine network, and humanity. So it feels more like a war movie to me. I agree. This this one, I feel like, gets the most hate out of all the Terminator movies in the, the franchise. I don't necessarily mind it. I don't mind war movies. And I like that at least they were trying in their approach to do something wildly different from the, the last three that we'd seen. And uh, I, I kind of appreciate the turn in direction, though. Overall, it's uh, it's one of those movies that I've, I've only, you know, I've watched it once and I don't know that I could tell you much about it because it's it is just, it's just kind of like a movie that yeah just kind of filtered through me and it's like serviceable and I'm like eh, you know what I don't I don't ever need to see that again. It's jarring when you watch all of these in succession, and when you get into this one, you start feeling like, hey, wait a second, the things that I've become familiar with aren't existing in this, and. I mean, if you're fine with that and you like it, then there are totally people that like this movie. But I felt very much like I wanted to return to what I already knew about the Terminator world. And I really miss Schwarzenegger. Good or bad Schwarzenegger, I missed him. And Schwarzenegger at this point, when Terminator Salvation came out, Terminator 3 was like his last big movie before he became the governor. And <laughs> pretty large span of time where he wasn't acting in movies. That's not going to stop Hollywood. But... You know, with Terminator Genesis, the fifth in the series, they didn't make it easy. After part three, they stopped putting the numerics on these movies. So it was like, <laughs> there was like a, the, it was always like Terminator and something else. Um, yeah. So part five, Terminator Genesis, they were able to squeeze Arnold in just a big enough role to where they could put him on the poster and make people not feel like they got ripped off. Yeah, Genesis didn't really bother me, but it did feel like a reforming kind of of the first movie just an updated 2015 feel. Again, didn't bother me as much as, say, Salvation did. I want that return. Sure, I'll take it. I liked seeing Schwarzenegger back, but if I'm going to say what's my favorite of the Terminator series after Judgment Day, it's actually going to be the last one that was made in 2019, Dark Fate. Yeah, I didn't see this when it came out in 2019 uh, because it really kind of got ravaged by people like fans, like the level of excitement sort of had died out so I really just didn't uh pay it any attention and mm -hmm. then uh when we you know decided that we we're gonna try to watch all the sequels prepping for this uh, I was kind of excited you know after watching Terminator 1 2 and 3 and yeah it's going in the same territory as, as 3 it's it's sort of redoing stuff that we've already seen but I do like the contemporary feel to it uh I do really appreciate the fact that James Cameron came back for the first time since part two as a producer and that they also brought Linda Hamilton back for the first time since part two. She, to me, is the best thing about this movie. Oh, uh, yeah. She's hysterical. Like, they really, you know, 
this was a movie that's kind of winking at you a little bit, not in an annoying way, but it's 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 having fun with the parameters that they've set up about how these timelines work and how these machines work. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, they were able to bring him back and have him aging in in a way that is as I think is as good of a storyline as you could have done to make it fit and to also make it be a little bit funny. I like that they went with more humor in this one. Uh, it was really appreciated. And after part one, every single one of these movies is a little long in the tooth. Same thing with Dark Fate. Like to me, going back to the first Terminator, it's so lean. It's, you know, there's doesn't seem to be too many wasted moments where it just seems like the future of action movies is how long can we make an action sequence lasts like what's <laughs> what's the record amount of time yeah you know i blame it on marvel but it's like let's have a 28 minute action scene where it goes on for so long I, I couldn't if you like stopped me after the action scene was over and said quiz me on how it started i wouldn't be able to tell you dark fate was like compared to the first and second one was the only one that had me in multiple moments, like on the edge of my seat in a few moments of action was like, Oh damn. Oh, okay. You know, like there were some really good scenes in it and I don't really mind that it was a retread. And then it, like you said, was winking at the audience. That nostalgic aspect is acceptable when you bring back, you know, the two main characters from the original and Linda Hamilton's humor is not necessarily knee slapper humor. It's because she is so grizzled and cold and her reaction to seeing the Terminator years later, um, that's like the funny aspect, even though she's not being funny at all. She's saying, you know, I'm going to kill you, right? And also we should say that Dark Fate is in the Terminator franchise series is acting as if three, four and five don't exist. So if you want to have some real fun, I mean, watch all of them, definitely, in a row. But maybe do one, two, and six and see how that goes. That might be kind of fun. And if you're a fan of uh, Clea Duvall's Happiest Season and you've never seen Dark Fate or know anything about it, it's pretty wild seeing uh, Mackenzie Davis from that movie is the, uh, what would you call it, like super-generated human? She's an augment. She keeps saying augmented human. She's human, but augmented. It was kind of wild seeing her in a role that she did almost two years before Happiest Season. Yeah, from seeing her in Happiest Season, I wouldn't necessarily think that, oh yeah, Mackenzie Davis, she's an action star. But watch her in Dark Fate, man. She's got some moves. It's a pretty awesome character for her to play. Everybody loves a good ranking. Lindsay, how they rank in your book? How, how, how does it go? I'm always going to say Terminator 1 is number one, then 2, 6, then I'm going to go with three, honestly. And then Genesis, and lastly is Salvation. What about you? Wow. Identical. <laughs> Identical. Did we really? Yes. And I didn't, this is not a put on. I, did I not wasn't tell sure. You, I did not yeah. tell you what my, uh, what my ranking was. I thought you were going to put Salvation, like, even in front of Rise of the Machines. Dang. Okay. Yeah, the, the thing with Genesis is that the, it's, it's the Arnie factor. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't mind Genesis. It, uh, again, if I'm gonna throw out one, it's gonna be Salvation. No offense, Christian Bale. They're all. I mean, all of them are feats, like beautiful cinematic feats. I could never do anything that is involved with any of it. But if we're just saying, what would you want to see again? That those those are my rankings. Yeah. But probably for from now until the rest of my life, I'll probably just stick to Terminator One and Two. 
from movies that I'll be revisiting in this franchise. You going to come over later and play some Terminator Super Nintendo games with me? Do you have the Terminator Super Nintendo game? No. Oh, I was excited. I remember <laughs> I remember when the Terminator video game came out, but there's also a Terminator PlayStation game that came out a few years ago, but I don't think that it's on that little Nintendo GameCube thing that I have. I don't think that it's on there. I wish it were. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll come back for some final thoughts on the Terminator, but we should move into our picks of the week. Lindsay, you stayed on Schwarzenegger for Conan the Barbarian. What can you tell me about that movie? You're right. I stayed on Schwarzenegger. I rode that Schwarzenegger train on out. Well, revisiting Conan the Barbarian had me a little worried. Is this movie going to hold up? You know, how are the effects? The story is, is my childhood going to be ruined and am I going to question all my early movie influences? You know, who knows? Fantasy adventure movies ruled my early years and it's been since the 80s. So how does this film that catapulted Arnold Schwarzenegger to stardom fare today? I mean, honestly, kind of surprisingly okay, except for one thing, and I'm just going to get it out of the way first. It does not at all pass the standards for animal treatment. Horses are tripped, a dog is kicked, and a camel is punched in the face. It's not cool and an awful sight to see and just shocking by today's standards, but I don't want to demonize an entire movie for it. I'm just relieved that crap like this is highly monitored nowadays. It's hard to believe anyone ever thought it was okay to do it in the first place. But that aside... As a whole, Conan's different than a lot of adventure movies of that time period. The film's language relies heavily upon the score versus dialogue, which is fairly uncommon. Nonverbal communication is key to dramatics here. Any pointed information we have is told to us through narration. The plot itself isn't rocket science, even if the Dark Ages prehistoric look makes it seem complicated. Conan came out in 82, right before Return of the Jedi, but smack in the middle of when American audiences wanted all the adventure movies that took place in a distant land or in some other time had some element of magic, sorcery, good versus evil, enacting some type of, you know, personal retribution. Arnold Schwarzenegger is, of course, Conan, a man who was enslaved as a child, forced into a hard labor camp, all after witnessing his parents murdered in front of him by an invading tribe headed by the big bad named Thulsa Doom, played by James Earl Jones, in a super unsettling role. Conan never forgot the snake-like medallion associated with Thulsa Doom and vowed within himself to seek revenge. The slave camp opening is brief, but establishes how Conan got so immensely ripped, so when he's secretly set free... What follows is a very buff, determined, and ticked-off orphan son with one goal in mind. What he comes to find is Thulsa Doom has now started a massive, bizarre cult where snake-worshipping, self-sacrifices, and orgies are commonplace. With the title of this movie, you might think it's all about Conan, but it's not the case. Fairly early on, he befriends a thief named Subutai, played by a well-known surfer named Gary Lopez, and the two become instant buddies, respectful of one another and are just companions roaming the land. Conan and Subutai come across a female ruffian named Valeria, played by Sandal Bergman, and she quickly proves that she's just one of the gang too. There's absolutely no struggle here between the three, and that's kind of cool. Valeria and Conan do couple up pretty quickly, but they're kind of the same type of person, so it makes sense and is surprisingly sweet, I dare say, about a movie named Conan the Barbarian. It is a little sweet. This is when the story gets really good. When the three raid the Tower of Serpents, Conan discovers the man he's been looking for is closer than ever. But in a plot twist, they're captured by city guards for their misdeeds and breaking into this tower. But it turns out that the king of the city requests that, in order to get out of this ordeal, they go save his daughter from this serpent cult who's now made her into a willing slave. That's right. 
Conan now knows exactly where to find Thulsa Doom and has the blessing of the king of this town to stop this guy's terrorizing and manipulative ways. I won't spoil the rest of the story, but there's a lot more to go, and Conan develops into an enjoyably engrossing movie. Even in moments where the characters are traversing various landscapes, these scenes are just as memorable as the story and really breathtaking. Most of the film is shot all around Spain, which explains these gorgeous lands and ruins, how they look properly weathered, like they've been there for thousands of years but still look half intact. Of course, there were many sets and villages that were constructed, like if you know the Tree of Woe in this movie that Conan is crucified on, that doesn't really exist, but there's a good mix of sets and real locations. Tons of miniatures and optical illusions further enhance the believability of this fantasy world, blending a real prehistoric look with a vibe and sense of the Dark Ages, along with sword fighting, sorcery, body morphing, all of it just creates a rich world. Conan certainly has some bold cinematography. It's not afraid to get a little bloody, but I'm kind of shocked it's not more so. I bet that there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. This isn't my go-to type of film right now in life, but I found myself honestly drawn in, even after 30 years of not seeing it. It's hard to believe a movie with Barbarian in the title has some serious heart, even empathy and care between the three lead characters. It's a story people can identify with. Themes of love, loss, revenge, and following your instincts. Sorry to break any macho hearts out there of anyone listening, but in between the awesome fight scenes, the root of the story has a lot of sentimentality built in. I really enjoyed going back and watching this and was kind of surprised. Yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, wanting to rewatch this now. Did you happen to watch Conan the Destroyer? Uh, yes, I did. Again, same same kind of thing. I think I was just partial to the first one. Um, I haven't gone back and revisited Red Sonja yet, but I remember growing up, that was my favorite. I don't know if it was just the female character was so prominent in it, but I enjoy all of these movies. Like I said, they're not going to be the one that I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch Conan the Destroyer today, you know, but if it's on, I don't think I'm going to turn it off ever. Yeah, I got to give both of those a look. I need to give your pick of the week, Commando, another look. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, once we made the decision to do uh, early Arnold Schwarzenegger movies for our picks of the week, I looked no further than Commando. Commando is one of those movies, uh, like early on in Arnold Schwarzenegger's career, where they definitely made a, a use of him having an extraordinarily ripped body, especially in the opening credits where he's literally holding a gigantic tree trunk on his shoulder and carrying <laughs> it through the woods. Um <laughs> But uh, Commando is a pretty simple film. It's a real, you know, one of those shoot 'em up '80s movies with some great one-liners. Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a retired special forces agent who uh, has retired, and he's like living out in the woods with his daughter, played by a young Alyssa Milano. And he's starting to find out. He gets word that his old command unit, everybody's getting picked off one by one. The military is worried about him getting picked off as well. So they station two guys to guard him. It's almost immediately happens. Those two guys get killed. Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter gets kidnapped. He finds out that one of the guys heading up this whole thing is his old partner who he thought was dead. And they basically force him. They're going to kill his daughter unless he commits a political assassination for them. So he agrees to do it, but he's got other plans in mind. And once he gets on this plane to leave for another country, uh, there's a great sequence where he kills the guy who's keeping him prisoner and looking after him and then makes his way through the bowels of the plane and jumps off the uh, wheels as they're getting ready to close up as the plane's taking off. 
And from then on out, he's on the clock. Like this movie kind of plays in real time where he's got to get to the place where his daughter's at and get her back before they find out that he got off the plane and isn't going to land in the country to do this assassination. He's on the run. He ends up stealing a car from a woman played by Radon Chong. She ends up helping him out. And really, it's kind of one of those movies where she just all of a sudden decides, you know what, I'm going to stick with this guy, even though I'm having one of the most reckless, craziest nights of my life. (laughs) And the rest of the movie is kind of your standard run and gun Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he probably shoots up like kills like something like 100 dudes. It's totally insane. Um, But it does have a really great cast of bad guys, including Vernon Wells, who plays his old buddy from his special forces troop, Bennett. And they have a uh, amazing uh, final blowout duel at the end of the movie. We also have David Patrick Kelly, who uh, is doing what he does best, um, playing that sort of slimy scumbag that he perfected in 48 hours in The Warriors. We also have a uh, podcast favorite, Bill Duke, playing a another bad guy, and uh, Dan Hedaya, who orchestrated the whole kidnapping of Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter. This is, uh, to me, I think one of the early movies that really kicked off the whole one-liners thing where Arnold Schwarzenegger breaks a guy's neck and then on the plane and then tells the flight attendant, uh, please don't bother my friend, he's dead tired, and uh, you know, drops a guy off a cliff and She's like, oh, what'd you do with him? And he's like, I had to let him go. This is a movie where they definitely started the winking at the audience, making them funny. Totally, totally ridiculous. But Arnold Schwarzenegger really sells those one-liners, and it makes me smile every time. And this movie is littered with them. I absolutely love it. Um, Commando is also very, very sharply directed by Mark L. Lester, who has made one some of my early favorite 80s movies like Class of 1984, Roller Boogie, Firestarter. He's such a great director and really knows how to mix you know, action with the B-movie style, but also getting good performances and usually having like a great secondary cast of characters. But if you haven't seen Commando in a long time, I highly recommend a revisit. As always, when, when you're talking, I'm, I'm looking up visuals of the movie and man, it is so familiar. For some reason, I blanked on Alyssa Milano being in it, but I remember Radon Chong. This is a fun one, isn't it? It's such a classic, yeah, shoot 'em up Schwarzenegger movie. But I love the still of uh, Radon Chong with the uh, missile launcher on her shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's awesome. I might have to borrow it from you. I can make that happen. All right, all right. Well, those are our picks of the week. If you're feeling uh, like a good early Schwarzenegger double feature. I highly recommend checking out Conan, The Barbarian, and Commando. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. (laughs) 
Unless you were directly affected, it's easy to not realize that 1984 was a glorious year when many franchises were born, and most obviously this episode Terminator, but also Ghostbusters. 1984 was a complicated year for Billy Murray, and I've brought up some aspects and why the year impacted him so greatly in previous Murray moments, but let's dive a little deeper into the impact of the supernatural blockbuster that changed his life. Ghostbusters grossed a disgustingly large amount of money, easily the highest grossing film of the year. At this point in his professional life, it was four years after the mass exodus of the original SNL crew, and Billy had box office hits like Caddyshack, Meatballs, and Stripes under his belt, even appearing in a substantial yet uncredited role in the comedy smash Tootsie. Bill Murray was a hot commodity who couldn't walk down the street without being mobbed. He commented once before that his fans would scream his name as if they were being killed, and it just became extremely shocking. Even though he wasn't a stranger to fame, things just got really weird, he said of the summer of 84. Sure, we're all used to hearing stories of Billy popping up in a restaurant, at a baseball game, any place you least expect. Social media, you know, makes us believe that you probably will run into him pumping gas one day. But the time I'm talking about is when Billy couldn't even go out to eat. People were ready to ravenously attack Ghostbuster Peter Venkman. Uncomfortable with his newfound stardom, he grew his hair out and stopped shaving in the hopes of not being recognized. Nope, that didn't work either. Now that he was kind of freaked out with Ghostbusters growing in popularity by the day, he flew out to see Danny Aykroyd in Montreal and the two headed out on a little road trip. They found themselves in Wisconsin. The hope of escaping and blending in wasn't looking good, though. Just after one night of going out, that Wisconsin town was blowing up with the news of two Ghostbusters haunting the area. Nobody was hunting ghosts, just Billy and Danny. And while this was arguably the most well-known movie of his career, 1984 was also the year of his passion project, The Razor's Edge, which I spoke about in our last episode on Dead Presidents and a little bit in The Legend of Billie Jean. It was Bill's first true attempt at doing something other than comedy, aside from the genre blender Where the Buffalo Roam in 1980. But people were consumed with the idea of Billy as a funny guy. No one wanted to see what he could do unless he was joking around. I know I'll just probably jump off a ledge if this doesn't open big, he said at a press junket for The Razor's Edge in October of 84, the same month that Terminator was released. Well, the film was not a commercial success, and like I say, every time this movie comes up, please give it another watch. It really didn't deserve the flack that it got. So think about that for a second. The same year that the man's dealing with a freakish amount of success, wanting to disappear, he's also dealing with the biggest blow to his career at the time. Mo' money, mo' problems, I guess, but... A lot of the money that he made from Ghostbusters went right back into a chunk used for the razor's edge. I'm not saying feel bad for him, but that year was a lot. He and his first wife, Mickey Kelly, they had just been married in 81. Their son Homer came along in 82. And as if those massive life changes and hustles weren't enough to balance, remember Bill had taken over his Peter Venkman Ghostbusters role, which had been originally intended for longtime pal John Belushi. And Belushi passed away in 82. All of those guys, Danny, Billy, Harold Ramis, all those guys were still heartbroken over the loss. I mean, heck, it was at Belushi's funeral when Billy told those guys how much he missed his SNL pals and that they needed to do something together again. And Belushi's spirit was very much alive during the filming of Ghostbusters. 1984 was a lot for this Murray brother. It was a jumpstart for his career, but also a swift kick in the butt, too. No wonder he took the next four years off from taking a lead role. I'm famous enough, as he's quoted in the book Wild and Crazy Guys. Being more famous isn't going to do anything but cause me more problems. Supremely bummed out, the Murray family escaped the country after Ghostbusters and the Razor's Edge promo was over. For the next six months, they lived in France, 
a country which had inspired Billy's character in The Razor's Edge. But that's a whole other Murray moment. If you want to hear a little bit about that time, check out episode 26, The Legend of Billie Jean. But for now, remember how much 1984 was a game-changing year for so many, and also the year that Billy's fame and emotional turmoil reached a peak so high he had to peace out from the public eye. It is kind of nuts that Ghostbusters and Terminator both came out same year. Same year. And Ghostbusters was still in theaters when Terminator came out. If memory serves, it came out in June. Yeah, what a phenomenon. I mean, I remember it a little bit. My mom swears we went to go see it in the theater, and I vaguely remember it, but I don't know if I'm willing myself into remembering that or not, but I do remember the phenomenon. Well, Lindsay, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course, as always. Do we have any final thoughts here on Terminator before we wrap this thing up? We didn't really mention one little thing that happened. I don't think that it impacted the release or really anything to do with the movie. But there was, I don't even want to say a scandal. It wasn't even a scandal. But there there was um, an alleged kind of plagiarism thing that came up about the, the story of Terminator. And that was the, the writer Harlan Ellison, sci-fi writer, well-known sci-fi writer, had written an episode of The Outer Limits called Soldier, from the 60s, I believe. And I haven't watched the episode, but I certainly read enough of the story to see the similarity. So he sued the production and it didn't turn into too big of a deal. They settled out of court for an undisclosed amount, but it really pissed off James Cameron because I I don't think that he thought that there was any plagiarism involved. But you can't really, if you read the breakdown of the story, it is kind of strange how similar it sounds to Terminator. Allegedly, uh, Cameron said in an interview that for Starlog that he ripped off a couple episodes of The Outer Limits and supposedly uh, someone that was that knew Ellison said that he also heard Cameron say that on the set of Terminator. There's no hard evidence. Supposedly that was... They were forced to take that out of the uh, printed issue of the article, so I don't know whether or not you know, <laughs> Man. it's all hearsay, but it seems like a weird thing to make up, you know? Yeah. He, and and he it was, was mentioning this uh, in interviews or to people when he was making the Terminator. I mean, it's enough to settle out of court and then future copies of Terminator have an acknowledgement to Harlan Ellison. It just sounds a little, it sounds a little sketchy, but you know what? I don't want James Cameron coming after me, but there was this thing that happened and who knows? James Cameron was having a fever dream. He could have been watching Outer Limits and this just seeped into his unconscious. Who knows? Once something is successful, makes money, people will come out of the woodwork to get their share if they think they had anything to do with it. Yeah, it's true. I need to track down this episode. I'd like to actually watch it versus just reading a breakdown of the story. I have a question for you, Justin. What's one of your favorite special effects moments? If you could just pick one, either like a cool, quick moment or or a scene. I have to go with the the repair scene in the hotel with Arnold Schwarzenegger because yeah. <laughs> that one, uh, there's something about eye stuff that is yeah. just when he cuts it out and reveals the robot eye. Man, it's still kind of is jarring to me and makes me want to wince a little bit when I watch it. But I also just think it's such a cool scene. And then when they... Mm-hmm. you know end it with the uh him you know responding to the guy banging on a door with the f you, you know. <laughs> the options that are yeah given. the options that are given yeah what about you 
for special effects moments, it wasn't until I saw some behind the scenes that I really appreciated when Schwarzenegger is launched on top of the car that Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor are in, and he lands on the car and he's on fire, and you know they like put acid on his back so it's smoking. Um, but where he punches through the windshield, you know, like watching that scene, it's fake glass, it's breakaway glass. And, you know, that's a stunt guy or something doing it. But man, finding out that that was really a windshield and just through how they had the camera set up, that it's not even Schwarzenegger's arm, it's something on a hydraulic that has 300 pounds of pressure that just bangs through a windshield and while that's going on, there's this fake wall that makes it look like the car's moving on the other side. It's such a convincing moment, and it's so quick, but it's really cool. And I really like that the behind-the-scenes of this movie was documented as thoroughly as it was. Yeah, there's a great little—I uh, think it's a, a culmination of a bunch of different behind-the-scenes stuff from Terminator that somebody put together, and it comes out to about like an hour or something that's on YouTube. But there's some great behind-the-scenes footage there if— uh, if you listeners want to or are curious, you can check it out and see. There's a there's some really cool uh, shots of of them working on the movie and how they did the miniatures and everything. I could sit and watch documentaries on them doing miniature stuff all day. It's just so cool to me. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our talk with Terminator. Oh, well, happy anniversary! Yeah, happy God, anniversary! Three years. This is I I love doing this podcast more and more every year. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe we're celebrating three years, so happy anniversary, Lindsay. I hope we celebrate many more anniversaries of this show. I'm planning on it. Well, uh, again, we hope you've enjoyed it. Um, please uh, check us out on social media if you haven't. Please follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube page. Our YouTube page is great. We have all of our old episodes on there. They're also archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Please check it out if you can. We have a store there. Uh, we've got a bunch of merch, stuff with our logo on it, movie posters, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, whatever we can find, we throw it on the website to try to sell it to put more money into the podcast. So next episode, we've got Days and Confused coming up. A perfect... Uh, movie to kick off the summer i love richard linkletter and i'm glad that we're we're finally getting one of his movies in as a feature for the for the podcast i can't wait to revisit this one that'll be a fun one look out for days of confused coming up next until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay raper thanks so much for listening thank you guys <laughs>